This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Investing for Income, The Retirement Dilemma. And the author is Curtis R. Bryant, and he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Kurt. Morning, Steve. How are you? Good to have you here now. This book is obviously loaded with information about this dilemma, which Americans are facing, uh, probably more of a dilemma than ever with the current economic condition. But before we get into details about your book, let's talk about your professional background, all that has led you to this point in your life. Okay. Be glad to do that. The story of uh, my dealing with uh, financial services began when I was a college student back in the 50s. And I started selling life insurance part-time on weekends and during the school year uh, and the summertime. And um, then when I got out of college, I went uh, directly into the life insurance business. And uh, after about 10 years of that, I added the capability of doing securities. Um and that was in 1968. Uh, so when it comes around uh, to uh, 2008 and I retire, I've been doing this for 50 years full-time and uh, about 54 years counting my part-time when I was going to college. Uh, during that period, in addition to my undergraduate work, I got a master's degree in financial services from the American College in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. So that's, uh, you know, I have some professional designations, chartered uh, financial consultant and a, a certified senior advisor, which kind of go along to support all of that uh, that other's uh, experience and, and study. Well, there's certainly a lot of books, a lot of articles, a lot of news about our financial lives. Why write this book at this time? Well, it's interesting. I, I've been in this business all the years, as I mentioned before, and as I began to approach retirement, I began to realize that the standard investment asset allocation models that I had used during the years I was accumulating my nest egg weren't going to be appropriate when I started drawing income from my uh, from my investment portfolio. And um, the more I looked around the industry, the more I found that the the, the most of the books and uh, certainly most of the professional training that's out there is focused on uh, helping people build a nest egg, not uh, what to do with it once they need to start drawing income from it. So I got into um, a period of doing research to figure out how I should change it and found it was pretty much... Uh, um, a loan job that wasn't, I couldn't just go to a book that said, here's how you handle your retirement income. Um, so that led, that research led to uh, to this book. Now, I think when we get into this area, especially people who are middle-aged, is that who you're focused on yeah, here? Yeah, I'm really thinking of the, of 
the fellow, that's, you know, the kids are out of college and uh, he's in his 50s or her or she's in her 50s or um, they've just had a meeting with the boss and they've, uh, they've said, well, you know, uh, uh, we're going to have you uh, take an early out package in a couple of years um, and you're going to get a settlement from the pension plan and you're going to have a... <clears throat> You're going to have a bundle of money to manage, and and most people are in a situation whether they saved it or whether it's coming out of a company pension plan have never had to manage uh, a large sum of money uh, unless they had a cocoon that they were kind of wrapped in. Like if you go into a 401k contribution uh, when you're working, um, what you end up with is you have kind of an outline of different options available that have been uh, decided by the employer when he set up the plan and now all of a sudden they're going to dump cash on you and you're supposed to take care of it and a lot of, a lot of people I find are just kind of perplexed of where to even begin and so this book hopefully would uh, will address a lot of that and that's why you asked the question are you ready to invest right. for income right exactly it's that it's a whole different I guess uh, a whole different um, basic knowledge and skills that you have to have, either by if you're going to do it yourself, of course, or, or you can work with a professional. Well, let me let me let me uh, kind of uh, flesh that out a little bit. Um, you know, when I, I I've got my house that that uh, I love uh, to live in, and I love where I live, and at the top of the real estate market. Uh, people told me I could sell my house for a figure that was about two and a half times what I had paid for it. And now after the bubble burst, uh, they're telling me, well, you could probably sell it and get a 1.6 times what you paid for it. So that's a heck of a drop in my, a heck of a drop in my uh, net worth, if you will, the equity loss. But it doesn't affect me. And the reason it doesn't affect me is it's still providing me what I want, and that is a nice place to live that I'm proud of, and uh, a place that I enjoy. So I'm, I'm I'm looking at something from my home that's different than its appreciation and value. I'm not going to sell it because I'd have to buy something else. And, I, and people need to start looking at their stock and bond investments the same way. For example, it doesn't really make much difference how much I could liquidate my portfolio for. Um, <clears throat> what really counts is how much income will it throw off. And that changes the whole game. Um, I certainly don't want to have to sell an asset in order to have income because if it's if the market's down like it's been the last year, I'm going to sell it at a loss. And I'll never get it back because I've sold it. What I need something is, a, is, is something that throws off income, whether that's a stock or a bond. And then I need to figure out what is the most um, uh, dependable source of that income without depleting my asset? Well, it seems from a very simplistic point of view, which is my point of view, <laughs> looking <laughs> at this whole thing, especially with the uncertainty right now for the future of, you know, how much taxes are going to go up or where the stock market is going, how in the world do you try to get a handle on that? Right, right. And that's, that is a lot about what the book is about. About focus on what counts. 
For example, I tell people, I don't care what my portfolio is worth the day I retire or 10 years after I retire. What I care about is, is what's the income that it's throwing off, and can I look at that being a dependable source of income and a growing source to offset inflation? For example, if, I, if I'm scared now and I've run to the sideline, by the way, there's about $3.6 trillion sitting on the sideline, not invested in, uh, in uh, producing assets, but in uh, uh, trying to save the money. If, if, I'm, uh, if I'm focused on, on, uh, on that safety, uh, I can get 1% on my money right now. That means if I've got it tied up in CDs and government bonds, etc., I can't. I'm probably not getting enough income off of it to sustain my standard of living unless I sell some of it. Well, if I sell some of it, it's gone. And even when interest rates come back later, um, those that I've sold won't come back. And so I have to have something that can take care of the changing conditions in the marketplace. And not just be afraid that uh, the value that I could sell it for is going to go down. And I can't stress that too much. Thinking of having a retirement portfolio and selling assets for income is just craziness. And yet people don't seem to have any better focus than that. With the housing market down, is this a good time for people to invest in property that they could use for income property? You know... I, I prefer not to have something I have to manage. <laughs> However, anytime you can buy something at a depressed price, or uh, so if you're buying investment income property, there are certainly good buys out there, my real estate friends tell me. And uh, if you have a good credit score, uh, you can get good financing, and the interest rates are, are reasonable. On the other hand, you can accomplish the same thing and not have any management obligations by buying into real estate investment trusts. The risk, in my judgment, is lower because you can diversify, and you don't have to get up every morning morning and, and worry about the property or answer the phone call because the toilet stopped up. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there, are, there are several ways to skin that cat, and yes, real estate's under pressure, and there's some good buys in real estate, whether you buy it through a real estate investment trust or buy it directly. Most people, when they think of the stock market, they think, of course, owning of shares of a company that you eventually cash in, I guess, and, and you hopefully sell them at a higher rate. But there's a very unique aspect that you point out in your book, the dividend-paying stocks. Right. And that sounds like, uh, that sounds like uh, mailbox money. That's right. That's exactly what it is. And it's, it, help, it holds up better, surprisingly, than not only the price of the underlying stock, but it holds up much better uh, in um, wild times like we're experiencing right now than do interest-bearing uh, uh, default-free bonds like government bonds or CDs or things like that. Um, for example, the dividend stocks that... I own, and by the way, I don't own individual stocks. I buy exchange-traded funds of stocks that pay dividends, and I'm getting uh, over 4.5% on those, and yet the money that I've got in the bank, I'm getting like one, one and a quarter. Um, so it, it, it's amazing how much 
more dependable that flow of income is <coughs> than uh, than most other sources of income. Certainly not as dependable as if you're getting an annuity check, but uh, from the standpoint of an investment rather than an annuity, uh, that's about the most dependable thing I can find out there that is paying any kind of a decent rate. A big question, I'm sure, for everyone, especially when you don't feel as qualified to work in the area of the of the stock market uh, you know or, or other financial tools like you just mentioned so the big question should i hire an investment advisor obviously that's going to cost me money or do i learn to do it on my own that is a good question uh, statistically they tell me about 70 75% of people prefer uh when they're doing their investment Investing to work with a uh, professional financial advisor, uh, and I think that is driven by the fact that most people aren't comfortable enough that they understand enough. The way I wrote this book uh, was specifically to keep in mind that whether or not you're one uh, a person that wants to do your own thing and do it on your own, or whether you want to work through a financial advisor, this is a basic source book so that you can discuss things intelligently with the advisor yourself, uh, with the advisor, or handle it on your own uh, and have some uh, some idea of the things available to you and, and how they stack up in meeting your needs. So either way it works. So I don't have to have a master's degree to understand your book? No, it's definitely written for the non-professional and the non-academic. Um, and that comes from the fact that uh, during the la- oh probably the last 20, 25 years that I was in business, because I had a lot of clients that I couldn't spend uh, a meeting with every week, I wrote a quarterly newsletter. And during that time, I kind of developed a pattern of speaking in, uh, in layman's language, if you will, about uh, financial subjects. And the, the one feedback that I got over that period of time, and I think I will about the book too, is, well, you make things that seem difficult um, uh, at, at the beginning, you make them understandable. And, and I hope that, that that's certainly my objective in my writing. Another basic question I think most people have after they've decided that they're going to hire someone to help them, how do you pick the right person? That's a great question. As a matter of fact, we have a whole chapter in the book that does exactly that. Uh, not all advisors are created equal. And uh, your job, of course, is to uh, try to to make a good fit. And that fit will lots of times come from just a feeling that you're comfortable with this person. Sometimes we'll lead in because uh, a friend of yours has been dealing with this person. But even so, even if you've got a good, strong referral from someone you trust uh, that this person knows what they're talking about, it's, um, it's, it's important to do a few things. One, I would say, is you need to get the person to tell you all about their background, uh, both their educational background and their professional background. And uh, do they Have they had any uh, experiences with disciplinary action from the, the regulatory authorities? Just good making sure that things are in order and um, 
and then find out what kind of a business race, uh, arrangement they have. For example, I can say that if your prospective financial advisor is an employee of a big financial firm, that can be good because those financial firms oftentimes will uh, provide some excellent training programs. On the other side, however, their training programs tend to be geared to the way that firm thinks things should be done. In other words, they, the way they've chosen to business, they get their their marketing people, if you will, their financial advisors out in the field, uh, to think the same way. So you do give up some independent thinking that might develop and will develop if a person's on the, more on their own. So you need to find those things out and then uh, make sure that everything is squared away as far as their history is concerned. Kurt, tell us how to get your book. The way you get your book, the, get the book is the publisher is iUniverse. If you just go to iUniverse.com, uh, you will get that website and you go to the uh, bookstore and punch in Investing for Income, The Retirement Dilemma, and up it'll come. And you, there are three ways to buy it. You can buy it electronically, you can buy it in a paperback, and you can buy it in hardcover. Also, it's available on Amazon. Um, I noticed uh, by looking on Amazon.com myself that it's not yet on the Kindle books list. And I do a lot of reading in Kindle books, so that <laughs> was one thing that interested me. But it is available in hardcover co- hard only right now at Amazon. Um, and I'm told that Barnes & Noble is setting it up on their system and so on. Um, they can also, if they would like uh, to have a signed copy of either the soft cover or hardcover, they can simply email me at uh, uh, the email address is Kurt, C-U-R-T, at Fincisco, that's F as in Frank, I-N hyphen S-Y-S-C-O dot com. And if they want a signed copy, if they send a request to me along with uh, the appropriate amount of money, I will be glad to... Uh, to uh, sign the book, uh, to uh, however they want me to sign it, and send it back to. And I'd need about three dollars and a half more for um, uh, shipping costs. Uh, but other than that, um, depending on where you are, there'll be some stores that'll have it. But most of the big stores will have it on electronic. Just look up and then order, it and it'll be there in a couple of days. Well, Kurt, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Curtis R. Bryant. He is the author of his book, Investing for Income, The Retirement Dilemma. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. 
After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Desperation, Surviving Hitler's Intention. And the author is Lydia Reichner-Reich. Right. And we want to welcome Lydia to iUniverse Radio. Hello, Lydia. Hi. Well, you're a lady who is now in your 80s, and you wrote this book back in the 60s about the terrible, beyond comprehension experiences you had in the days of war torn. Uh, was it Germany that you lived? Or no, Poland. You lived in Poland. Well, no. I was born in Germany. Oh, you were born in Germany. I was born in Germany. Then the Germans deported because my parents were from Poland. Your pr- parents we were, were from Poland. A, a, a beautiful living in Germany. And but this then a- the Nazis came to power and they deported us. And it's all in the book what I went through. Now, how old were you? At that time... I must have been five or six. Five or six years old. And how long were you in custody by the Nazis? Oh, until I was liberated. So how many, was it uh, a few years before you were liberated? No. They they took us to, they pushed us to Poland. And after little than a year, they came to Poland, they started World War II, and they came to Poland, and then the whole horror started. Well, I don't know how much you want to talk about that. That's up to you, obviously. This is a story, really, of your life, right? Yeah. This is your story, right from when you were uh, a, a little girl? Yeah. And, and, and then, of course, you went through the, the Holocaust? Yeah. And and tell us, let's see, it was your parents you saw murdered? My parents were killed. I was torn from my mother's arms. Uh-huh. I was hiding. And I heard outside neighbors saying they're taking my mother instead of me. So I jumped out from the hiding place to give myself up. And my mother screamed because what mother doesn't want to save her child? And I, so they took me and they sent me to a slave labor camp at Graydon. 
And then later they made us go to Bergen-Belsen. And so both your mother and father... And my whole family perished. Your whole family, your sisters as well? Yeah. How many sisters? Two. Two sisters. So you're the only one that survived. Yeah. I had two brothers that didn't want to stay in Germany. They saw what's coming. So one went to Argentina because he could get the papers. It was hard to get papers. And it costed you... uh, very much money to get the papers. And then my other brother uh, uh, went to Israel. He said, if you want to stay here, that's your privilege, but you better get out of here as fast as you can. I wish my mother would have listened to him. And so ever since you were liberated, you wanted to tell your story to honor your parents and your sisters. exactly. And that's why you wrote it back in, what, 1965 is when you wrote it? I think something like this. And it was still fresh in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, when I was in hiding in Bergen-Belsen, I would write, when nobody looked, I would write, and then later I would sit on it. So they didn't catch me. I had it. Wherever I went, I wrote, and I hid. So you, what did you write on? Just anything you could write on, any, and just scraps any of paper? paper? Any scraps I could find. And obviously you hid them. Yeah. What do you remember about this time when when you were in bondage? Uh, you were working in a, in a uh, camp? Were you in hard labor? Well, the first bondage I was was driven by Strigau. There we were working 12 hours a day with one slice of bread a day. And there we were uh, making for the army those, uh, you know, wooden uh, wooden sticks that you push together on the machine. I worked on that machine. And I was a little girl myself. But there was a Belgian... Uh, that asked me if I want he should hide my letter from home. He'll gladly do it. And I gave him to hide them. And later I had a feeling, I had a dream that they're taking us away. So I told him, bring me my papers. And the next day he brought them. And the following day they took us away. So you were able to keep your papers and yeah. keep them intact and not lose yeah, them. Yeah, I had them all over my clothing, under my, under my garments. Why do you think? Why do you think humans can be so just out of their minds? I guess I don't know what else to call the Nazis. How can yeah. someone uh, be so inhumane to other fellow humans? Can you? Do you have any idea? We were children. We were children. Right. And and why were the Nazis? Why did they act that? I mean, why were they so inhumane? Can you can you ever figure that out? Because even now, if you think back in Germany, it starts again. The Germans just don't like other races, especially the Jews. So it's it's. What? The world better be cautious. 
the world better wake up because the Germans will always be the Germans. So you believe the Germans always have a hatred for others? Huh? You believe the Germans are always have a hatred for other people? I think they want to be the superior race. The superior race. Right. How did you finally get your freedom? How? How? Uh, by dying. I died. I was dying all around me in the block in Bergen-Belsen. The, later they hung the, 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 the guy that watched us. They hung him. And I couldn't walk. I crawled. So we got no food, and I, then when I was in, in, in the camp in Bergen-Belsen, I thought, well, that's probably going to be the end, that I'm a fighter, you see, I'm a fighter, and I taught my kids, don't start with other children, but if anybody hits you, hit back. You cannot let people step on you. Uh, then this way I survived by just pretending I'm dead when they came around and then again hiding from place to place. Was it the Americans that came and yeah, rescued you? No, the English. The English? The English. And they, those that came were very sweet, very, very sweet. But later... As you well know, they're changing those that fight with another group. I don't know how you call that. But those that, that liberated us were just starved. But those that came afterwards just to watch everything, they were hatsi-tatsi within the Germans. The German women were... And uh, I went out for a piece of bread I wanted. I went out for a piece of bread, and I found this piece of bread. It took it at the German woman that went with it, a British soldier. They were hatsi-tatsi with them. And he came, and they took away this piece of bread from me. Most of the time, you didn't have very much food? Afterwards... When the British came in, they gave us food. Then we had, but when we were, we were dying from disease and hunger. Did the you, Germans were. Did you get sick while you were in the camp? I had typhoid. You had typhoid. Yeah. How long did you have that? Oh, a few months. And how 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 uh, were you able to get cured? To survive. Right. It's only the Almighty knows. So you really have no idea? No. You no, just you just got my better. My girlfriend was not so sick like me, and she went there to a hospital, and I warned her not to go because they'll kill you. And she said, no, I cannot do anymore. I don't feel good. So she went, and uh, sure enough, she died there. But I didn't go. And I toughed it out, and I survived. Did the Nazis ever torture you? Yes. 
the tortures us. They made us take blocks and stuff and work, and we were little girls. Yes, they tortured us. How have you been able to do just make it through life with these kinds of memories? How have you been able to just uh, keep going with such terrible, terrible memories in your mind and heart? Because I had that dream for my mother. And my mother said, go on, Lydia. Things will be good. I'm watching over you. I had the dream of my mother kept me going. So that... After your mother was killed, you had this dream? Yeah, a few times. And she says, go on, you have to live, you have to live. I'm watching over you. So you always knew that she was there? Yeah. And so you just were determined to live? I was. I very much was. Even today. If things go tough, I'm all very determined. And how old are you? I'm right now. I was born in 1927. 1927. So, so you're 82. Yeah. Well, I. it's hard to uh, really talk about this with you, Lydia, because I really have no, can't even begin to comprehend what you went through. I, I just can't even imagine, but uh, we're... We're so thankful that you were able to write it down because it's important for people to make know, a movie right? From that. They should make a what? A movie? Yeah. They probably should. But it's that, very important I, that we understand. I, I don't have material if anybody wants to see. I have uh, material that I smuggled out in my coat. Hmm. It, it's very important that we remember history, isn't it? Uh, very important. That we remember the Holocaust and remember all these victims of the Holocaust. Yeah, for our children's sake. So do your children ask you a lot of questions, your grandchildren? You probably have great-grandchildren. Yeah. Do they they ask you about what you went through as a little girl? In the beginning, they would ask me. They would ask me, but the little ones don't understand. Right. They know, they know that I, what I went through, they know, because I have it written down, yes, you will know. And that's why you wanted to write your book as to honor your parents and your sisters who were tortured and burned alive in the crematorium. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it helps to write things down that are, are are just tearing you apart, right? It helps to get it. It's like catharsis. No, it's, it gives me it gives me great pleasure to know that the world knows. Well, we commend you for for doing this, Lydia, and and we. As uh, Americans who were born and raised here and uh, can't even imagine what you went through, but we're so glad that you were able to survive it and write this story. And I'm sure you're a, a great blessing to all your family and all the friends you have all around you. I'm sure they really appreciate you.
How do we you get your make a movie from it? You know? <laughs> yes, they need to make a movie. I agree. I agree. How do we get your book, Lydia? We get it through iUniverse dot com, right? Yeah. Okay, and and do you know oh, if oh, if you come to my house, I'll give you a copy and go to your house. Okay. I have a few copies. Right. Well, we we thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. You're very welcome. That was Lydia Reichner-Reich. She is the author of her book, Desperation, Surviving Hitler's Intention. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Nomad's Journey, and the author is Attila Bektora. Attila joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Attila. Hello. Attila, this is a very, very tragic story, but one with triumph. A tragic story and what your family, what your father had to go through with trumped-up charges by Soviet officials and your eventual reuniting and coming to America, but a lot of tough times, and especially a lot of tough times for your father and your mother. Tell us why you wrote the book. I asked the same question to myself when I started it. Uh, Something prompted me to do that. And uh, I thought uh, back, and uh, I realized that since I was a kid uh, growing up in Central Asia, in Ashgabat, in the Soviet uh, Central Asia, I was uh, a kid uh, always curious about things, you know, like... And what it, year was that, growing up? About what year? Actually, this was uh, about uh, 1932. Okay. 1932. So... Um, I was, I remember, for instance, like I was always curious uh, in school. I was in uh, primary school, and 
and uh, say, like, uh, why airplanes fly and why the uh, ships uh, built of iron and steel don't sink and this type of things, you know. And, uh, and also, at the same time, I was an avid reader. Uh, we, we uh, in our neighborhood, with a, we had a library, and, of course, all the books were in Russian and then translated to Russian. So, for instance, like, uh, you would uh, like to know that uh, when I was 10 years old, I already read uh, the Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer and uh, Huckleberry Finn, Jack London's, for instance, like Call of the Wild, James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans, and, uh, and Alexander Dumas' the, the Three Musketeers and this type of things, you know. And that particular uh, avocation, set of things that I write, I like reading, continued through my life, you know. And uh, all, everything I enjoyed reading, not only the... Uh, uh, the stories of the day, but also the history and the geography, etc. So when I retired, and then all of a sudden, some kind of an urge, I said, well, wait a minute, look, I accumulated so much of that knowledge. Maybe I, maybe I would do something that give back to, uh, to, the, to the people or to the, uh, to the environment that uh, helped me so much. Uh, for this particular thing, uh, prepared me for it. So that's how I started. And uh, I started sort of said, well, wait a minute, uh, reluctantly saying maybe it's going to be 200 or 300 pages, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end, uh, I ended up with a 600 pages book. And as you say, with, uh, with the full of geography, full of history, full of stories, uh, full of life stories, et cetera. So that's how I feel. I think it's probably that's how what prompted me to write to start write to write the book. How old were you when your father first got into trouble with the government and then got arrested? Exactly the date that I told I just quoted one nineteen thirty two. Nineteen thirty two when I was ten years old, my father was arrested the, the previous day. And then uh, overnight, about uh, three or two o'clock in the morning, uh, we had a loud knock at the door, and uh, uh, it appears like the KPO agents, the secret police uh, people, were at the door. Uh, we we were reluctant at the time. We didn't know who they were because there was a lot of uh, unsettling things taking place in Ashgabat. We didn't open, but finally my mother realized that these were the official people. With the, 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 she looked through the window, and uh, she uh, looked at the, in the dark. She saw some uh, military uniforms, etc. She opened the door, and the people came in, and all night long, under the morning, they just uh, risked everything, took some books, etc., and took them with us, and that was in my, and I, of course, I was uh, waking up and uh, continued. Uh, we didn't, I didn't go back to sleep. And uh, then I followed the, uh, the whole thing with my mother. And that is still fresh in my memory, the, the, the night to follow, the following my father arrest. That's how uh, it was the first uh, day, first day and night of the, my father's arrest. Now, why was he arrested? Well, actually, he was arrested 
and accused of anti-government activity, anti-governmental, or rather, in, uh, I guess, in the sum of the details in, in the accusation was that he was also a member of a certain society which acted against the Soviet regime. Now, if you were born and raised in Crime- Crimea? No, I wasn't. Uh, actually, I was born in Crimea, but we, uh, my father uh, moved by our family to Dagestan when I was uh, about uh, five years old. So uh, I was uh, actually uh, didn't, don't much remember of Crimea, but I remember Dagestan. And then from Dagestan, we crossed the uh, Caspian Sea in 1927. My father went to, uh, by invitation to the uh, Ashgabat, which is uh, the Republic of Turkmenistan, and the, the education department uh, engaged him to be an education uh, director in one of the, uh, their uh, schools for the teachers, you see. So that's how we ended up in 1927 in Ashgabat. And then um, uh, in nine, five years later, my father was arrested. Now, these were, as you say, trumped-up charges. Why did they do that to him? Well, actually, I explained that in my book in, uh, in a sense that when I touch upon the politics and history of the Soviet regime at the time, um, they, it, it was a, like a, you didn't have to be active in some kind of an organization or anything like that. If they suspected uh, you of maybe a potential, some potential uh, in, 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 the, in the person, they just uh, accused them of trumped-up charges, and they found the people who would uh, put this accusation in a written form, whatever, and then uh, it was up to the authority. In actual fact, when he was, he was convicted, there was no trial. Just his dossier, what I actually explained that in the book, uh, the lengthy, lengthy interrogation uh, of him in the prison, in uh, Ashgabat prison by GPO agents for one year. And uh, obviously they could not, it, it always depended on confessions. They tried to get the confessions from him because actually there was no witnesses that corroborate their uh, accusations. They always tried to get the confession. But they couldn't get a confession. But nevertheless, he was sentenced to 10 years in the labor camp. And the, ten, the sentence was actually uh, approved by a troika, by a tribunal in the other city. There was no trial or anything like that. It was just, a, just announced to him that, look, hey, Mr. Bektori, you are, you are convicted for 10 years, and then we're going to ship you to the camp. That was it. And he ended up spending uh, much more than 10 years. Exactly, because uh, actually when in 32, in 32 and 10 years sentence would uh, be ending 42. In 42 actually was when, when in 41 uh, Germans attacked Russia, and Russia was in war with Germany. So then they, uh, all the political prisoners in the camp, although they are, the sentences expired, they were not released. They told them they could not release them, they will have to wait the end of the war. But on the other hand, some of, some of the uh, people, non-political ones, like, like um, ordinary criminals, they were actually 
uh, invited, uh, invited even in the camps to join the military, join the army to fight against Germans. And many of them did, actually. They were under conviction, still had some years uh, to complete. Nevertheless, they were drafted into the army. But my father stayed on until 46. When in 45 the war ended, in 46 he was released. But uh, 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 he couldn't. He couldn't go uh, to uh, nearby uh, large town of Tashkent because uh, in those years uh, everybody had the internal passport and they were confined to uh, to live in certain certain areas. So he was in a, lived for about uh, two years in a uh, small town selling uh, uh, matches and all these things, and then. At the end of the second year, police uh, summoned him to the headquarters and told him that he was a very dangerous person and he would send him to the exile to Siberia for another eight years. It, it was in the uh, around uh, Lake Baikal in uh, Novosibirsk. So over 20 years... Actually, total, a total of 22 years in confinement. My goodness, 22 years and really didn't deserve any of it. That's right. Exactly. That is overwhelming. Now, at the at this whole time, your mother has to take responsibility for the family, and and obviously uh, that must have been very difficult. Exactly. She, of course, had to work, and then we lived. Uh, we moved from Ashkabat to Tashkent because my father's confinement, uh, the camp was near Tashkent, and uh, there was visitation uh, visitation allowed once or twice a year. So. In order to be close to him, my, my mother moved us there, and we uh, rented, uh, actually, uh, didn't rent, but rather there was an acquaintance who just shared uh, uh, just one or two rooms uh, uh, with the, in their house with us. And then I went, I continued to go to school with, like, my brother and my sister. My mother worked, uh, and, of course, it was very difficult. Uh, you know, she was uh, working in a as a seamstress. And then uh, we uh, had visitations. We uh, visited my father there. I uh, went to the camp, and I, I just recalled the camp with all this uh, barbed wire and everything. We stayed there only uh, one night. I came back. And then in 1937, 1937, which is already five years into his confinement, my uh, father... On one of the visitations of my mother, he told her, she's, because my, my mother was I, still, she was a Turkish citizen because she was, uh, she was native of Turkey. So, um, uh, she, and, but my, my father was a Russian citizen, Soviet citizen. So um, uh, he told her, he said, look, uh, you still have a Turkish, probably will have a Turkish passport. Apply to the Turkish consulate in Moscow. Get a passport for the kids and you. You have all the relatives, and please take the children out of the country because there's no, you just don't wait for me. There's no, there's just too much hardship for you, number one. And secondly, it's no good for the children because they will be nothing. They will not have no future. My mother reluctantly accepted that. And in the final, uh, in the finally, she obtained the Turkish passport. In 1937, we took the train to Moscow and from Moscow to Odessa, took the trip, took a ship to Istanbul to the relatives. That's how we 
1937, left uh, Russia, left Tashkent uh, and my father in the camp and went to Turkey. That must have been very difficult. It was very difficult. It was very difficult for my mother and for us, of course. But nevertheless, it was a, uh, at the, in the final analysis, at the end, it was a very sort of wise decision because, as you know, uh, uh, when the Russian war started in 41, I already would, be, would have been in a, just in a age to go to the military, you see. If we had stayed, I'm sure I wouldn't have been alive today because I would have been drafted in the army. As, as you know, the Russian, Russians lost millions and millions of people uh, during the war against, uh, against uh, Germans. So, uh, so that was uh, uh, one of the things that I'm sure uh, would have been, uh, if, would have come to light if we had stayed uh, in, in Russia. But nevertheless, the, 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 the final thing was that uh, after he uh, completed his sentence in uh, Siberia in the exile, he uh, always wrote to the authorities in Moscow that his family was in Turkey, he was alone, he had nobody here that they would release his sentence, and that on no avail. But in 1956, Nikita Khrushchev, came to power as a general secretary of the Communist Party who ruled Russia. And, uh, he, and he signed the decree to releasing the prisoners in Siberia along with the Volga Germans, some of the uh, Polish prisoners, etc. Among them was my father, and he came back to Turkey to us in 1956. And you eventually moved to the United States. Exactly. When, uh, of course, in Turkey I... Um, I, uh, despite the, the odds, uh, I, uh, I continued with my education, uh, graduated as a civil engineer, worked in Turkey, and, uh, and um, uh, decided uh, to uh, sort of uh, try my luck uh, uh, overseas. And uh, I uh, always admired uh, the United States from all the readings, from all the books that uh, I uh, went through, and uh, so I decided. And it, of course, my being born in the, in, in the Soviet Union facilitated uh, my immigration. By that time, I was married in 1961, but my wife and I uh, went to the uh, to, uh, United States. Well, this is a story that goes from the timeline from 1914 to 1990 and has your memoirs, it's autobiographical, it's historical, and gives us a lot of details, not only what was happening to you and your family, but what was happening in the country in which you were living. And so it's, uh, it's very intense and, and very comprehensive, and we really appreciate you sharing your story on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Attila. All right. Thank you very much. How do we get your book? Uh, well, uh, actually, uh, uh, just it, uh, uh, I'll send it to you. And uh, another thing is that uh, uh, I guess um, there was, uh, I'm expecting in uh, November there will be a book fair in uh, Miami uh, organized by iUniverse. And I'm uh, rented a booth there for signing my book, and I'll be there, on the, I think, on the 14th of November. 
And so people can order it through iUniverse? Uh, through iUniverse, and also it's available at uh, Amazon.com and uh, Books a Million. Well, thanks again, Attila, for being with us. Thank you very much for, uh, for listening to my story. That was Attila Bektora. Right. He is the author of his book, A Nomad's Journey. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.